someone, if, if things aren't good, right, with this, you let me know, and we'll put this on, but okay. It's good to be back with you folks. I say back, and most of you probably don't know me. Um, we lived here 40 years ago, right up there in the apartment for over a year. You were the beginning of our ministry here on Long Island. We moved from New England down here to Lake Grove New Village Congregational Church on April 8th, 1974. And so many stories, thank you very much, that I won't go through with you because I've got a message I want to bring to you today. But yeah, we've been the director of Northern Frontier Camp since 1995. Liz and I, she's the really pretty lady there that was sitting next to me, and I'm very happy about that. And we were with Christian Service Brigade before that. We moved from Massachusetts to come down here to serve with Christian Service Brigade and did that for 21 years. And then in 1995, went to Northern Frontier and have been there ever since. So it's been a long time, and you can tell by the color of my hair. I don't want to spend too much time on reminiscing because I do want to bring you this message. And I'm a camp director. And uh, I'm going to pray in just a minute or actually ask you to... But this is a story. I'm going to start you off with a campfire story. Isn't that nice? And I hope you enjoy it, but it's certainly got a point that I hope to bring out to you. Um, So anyway, my request is this. I'd like you to go to the Lord for just a moment here and ask for two things. Ask that God opens your heart to what he wants to say to you this morning. Let's go to prayer, and if you'd pray that for yourself... Quietly, I'd appreciate it. The second thing I'd ask you to pray for is ask God to keep Ralph Essery out of the way so that his spirit can speak freely. Father, I know these two prayers are your will. And I pray for it. I pray, too, as so many memories flood over me as I'm back here, that you give me a calmness. Um, Have me focus on you now and not all of those memories of the people from this place who preceded the people who are here now. Thank you for this opportunity. And open your word to all of us, including me now, as we go through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Ready? The missionary had worked long with the, they're called Native Americans now, right? But I have to call them Indians because that's the story. You'll forgive me for that maybe? With the Indians, this is, by the way, loosely based on the story of David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans back whenever it was. He'd worked hard with the Indians for some time and without much fruit, and as the Sun was setting in the fall one year. He was listening to the calls from the tribe across the lake. And then he settled down beside his fire, as was his practice, and he opened his word of God. He crossed his legs in front of them and opened the word of God and read by firelight, which he did every evening. Well, after dark, the bushes parted, and through the bushes came the chief of the tribe. David stood, or the missionary stood, to receive his guest and motioned for the chief to sit down. They both sat down around the fire, and the chief looked at the missionary and said, 
Tell chief about your God. So the missionary shot a prayer skyward, and then he said to the, to the chief, he said, The God I worship is the God of the lake. Well, do you know the people of the lake, he said. The fish and the otter and the beaver. They live, they give birth, they eat, and they die, all according to the will of God, for he made them and they are his. He's the God of the lake. And the chief nodded and said, the God of the lake. But the missionary went on. And he said, well, do you know the people of the forest, the deer, and the woodchuck, and you name them. He says, and they live, they give birth, they eat, they die, all according to the will of God. For they are his, he owns them. He's the God of the forest. The chief perked up and he said, the God of the lake and the forest. Missionary continued, Well, do you know the plains and the people of the plains? And he named the animals that live in the plains. And he said, These animals live and die and have their being in God, for he made them and they are his. He's the God of the plains. And the chief said, Of the plains as well. Then the missionary looked up. It was evening beautiful night. And he said, well, do you know the skies and the people of the skies, the stars and the sun and the moon, the planets that move? And he said, they live and they have their being and they move according to the will of God, for he made them and they are his. And the chief lifted his eyes up and said, even the God of the skies. Missionary went on, You know man, the red man, the white man, all men were made by God and he's ordered our ways. He's given us life. He's made us. All that we are and have come from him. For he is the God of man. And the chief said, and the God of man. But the missionary went on and said, but of all his creatures, only man does not move in accordance with God's bidding does not live according to God's will, but rather is disobedient, rebellious against God. Man was made by God, but man has become God's enemy by man's own desire. Man seeks to do the thing that is against the will of God. Instead of seeking him, man is running away from God. Well, the chief knew his people very well, and he knew his own heart. And he just nodded in agreement with the missionary. Then the missionary went on to explain to this forest dweller the great and glorious story of God's grace. And he said, God still loved man. Despite the fact that man was God's enemy, God loved man. And God wanted man back, so God sent his strong son named Jesus to come down. And he came down to the earth and he allowed men to kill him by nailing him to a tree so that he died. And when he died, he took all my badness from me and put it on himself. And the chief was listening to this and he said, that is not right. Man should be killed by God. Man is God's enemy. 
And the missionary tried several different ways to try to explain the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ to this chief, but to no avail. And the two lapsed into quite a long silence. Then as they sat by the fire, the missionary grabbed a stick. And the autumn wind had spread a brown carpet of dried leaves all across the forest. And the missionary made a circle of leaves. And then he took a burning stick from the fire and he started to light the outside of the circle. But the chief had not missed what was in that circle. Right in the center of the circle was a very small caterpillar crawling across the leaves. And as the flames went up around the circle and started to move in, the caterpillar first went this way and then felt the heat and went that way and then felt the heat and came back, ended up back in the center. And finally, as the flames were closing in, just curled up to die. And at that point, the missionary put his finger right down through the fire and touched the ground and just barely touched the caterpillar. And the caterpillar, feeling the relative coolness of the missionary's finger, crawled up in his finger, and the missionary pulled him away from the fire and set him down safely at some distance. The missionary looked at the chief and said, I was just like that worm. I deserved God's wrath. It was coming in all around me. There was no escape. I had no hope I was God's enemy. But then God's great son, Jesus, came down and rescued me from the middle of that fire. And the chief listened. He paused. And then he stood. And he put his arms up to heaven like this. And he said, Oh, great God. Oh, great son, Jesus. Put your finger down here so that this chief can crawl up. And then the missionary, uh, excuse me, the chief, lowered his arms and looked at the missionary and walked away. Well, the missionary prayed. He was so grateful for the convert in this man who led his tribe. Well, some time later, weeks or a couple of months later, during the winter, the chief returned one night as the missionary was there reading his Bible. And he came back and he stood before the fire and the missionary stood to greet his guest. And the chief looked at the missionary and said, I brought a gift for my God. And the missionary was silent. And the chief took out an absolutely beautiful piece of jewelry that he had made over the previous months precious, very precious to the Indians of great value. And he set it before the fire and he backed away. And the Holy Spirit spoke to the missionary and said, say two words. The missionary in obedience looked at the chief and said, not enough. I don't know if I'd had the courage to do that. The chief was surprised picked up the gift, and walked without a word out of the camp. And the missionary prayed. Well, the winter passed and spring came. And one night again, after dark, as the missionary sat before his fire, the bushes parted and the chief walked in. And the chief looked at the missionary who stood to greet his guest, and he said, I have better gift for my God. And he brought a bow and an arrow. Now, the missionary realized that this was his livelihood he was bringing. This is how he lived. 
And he set it down before the fire. And he backed away and looked at the missionary. And the Holy Spirit spoke to the missionary and said, say two words. The missionary, in obedience, said, not enough. And the chief now, a bit frustrated, bent down and took the bow and arrow and went his way without a word. And the missionary prayed. Well, that summer, again, the same scenario happened. Where the chief walked in, the missionary stands. And the chief said, I have brought the best gift for my God. And what he had over his shoulder was a blanket. Now, to you and me, that would mean very little. But this blanket was embroidered with all of the exploits of his forefathers and his own that enabled him and allowed him to be the chief of the tribe. This was his identity, so to speak, his reputation. And he laid it before the fire. And the chief, I mean, the missionary knew what this was. And he looked, but the Holy Spirit spoke to the missionary and said, say two words. And the missionary in obedience looked at the chief and said, not enough. And the chief, obviously frustrated, picked the blanket up and left. Some months went by. It was almost a year from that first visit that I told you about. And the chief came through again at the bushes in the evening. And the missionary stood and watched. And the chief didn't say anything right away this time. But he came in dressed in such a way that the missionary didn't know what to expect. He had everything a chief should wear on him at that point. He had the long war bonnet with the eagle's feathers that went down almost to the ground. He had the sacred wampum around his chest. He had the blanket over his shoulders. He had his bow and arrow all within there. And the missionary wondered what was happening. Without a word, the chief put down the bow and arrow in front of the fire. He took off the jewelry that was on his wrists and his ankles, and he laid them in front of the fire. He took off the sacred wampum and put that there. He took the blanket off and laid that down and the headdress and put it down beside him. And then (laughs) the chief looked at the missionary and said, Chief has nothing else. Chief brings himself as a gift to his God. And the missionary heard the Holy Spirit say, Say one word. Enough. Isn't that a great story? This is what we tell the kids at Northern Frontier, one of the many, many stories. Now, let me me not go to Northern Frontier here. Let me go to you and me. That story should make you ask a question. How much is enough? We just passed the new year. People make New Year's resolutions. I gave up on that a long time ago. Why should this one day of the year be a time when I can change my life? The whole year, every day, every moment of every day. But if you want to make them, that's great. And many people do. And A couple people keep them, you know. (laughs) But I have another question for you. You say, what's enough? Well, I would say, enough for what? Huh, you say. Enough to get into heaven? Enough to maybe earn a reward or two? You read about those in the scriptures, you know. 
Or how about enough to bring glory to Christ and to please him? What's your answer? Enough for what? Through my years as a Christian service brigade representative especially, but also as a camp director, I've had the privilege of gaining a reasonably wide knowledge of evangelical churches in the Northeast. I was responsible for churches from Maine down to Virginia, and personally for about a hundred of them over time, in fact several hundred over time, and with few exceptions, what I saw in those churches was a few people who have seemed to have embraced total commitment to Christ, while the large majority of people in these churches, good evangelical churches, were content to be good enough. That was like their goal. This majority wanted to be Christian so as to get into heaven, but without their Christianity altering their earthly life, that they led and desired to keep leading. That was obvious. Now, my father-in-law was an end times buff, and he pushed me to think on the subject quite often. It's my belief that while people can be scared into short-term behavioral changes, they can't be scared into a heartfelt lifestyle change, not permanent. That has to come from somewhere deep within the person. Now, at the same time, I don't think it's wrong to proclaim all of the truth of Scripture, and I know you'd agree with me, but you know something? Some of it is scary, but it needs to be proclaimed. Let me give you just a couple verses that start in that direction. Hebrews 9.27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face, what's the next word? Judgment. Judgment? I'm a Christian. All my sins have been forgiven. Judgment? There's a judgment to come. I'm going to say something to you that some of you may not have believed, but I think you will by the time we're done. And that is that all people are subject to judgment. All people. There was a time that I believed I and all Christians were not because it had all been paid for. Now, and it has. It's all been paid for. But listen to these judgments. Also, it is true that all people are not subject to the same judgments. But there are judgments to come. In Revelation chapter 20, two kinds of books are opened. One records the deeds of every person who ever lived. The other is the book of, oh, come on, the book of life. And it says in uh, verse 15 of chapter 20, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the book. If your name, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, your name is written in the book of life and there should be nothing that you rejoice in more than that. But there's another book and it's filled with the deeds of everyone who ever lived. Those who don't receive Christ during their earthly lives People don't like to preach this or, or, or hear this anymore, seems to me. People who do not receive Christ during their earthly lives are eternally judged by the absence of their names having been written in the book of life. They didn't receive Christ, and there's a price to be paid, 
And that's why this church and so many others and individuals send missionaries around the world to spread the word so that all who hear have the chance to receive. But that still leaves this other set of deeds books. Um, I won't ask you to turn here because we're going to several verses. If you want to jot these down, it's Romans 14, 12, and it says this. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now again, as I read this, uh, being a fairly new Christian and feeling that I didn't have any sins to pay for because Christ paid for them all, or to be remembered, I said, fine, but you know something here? It says Romans 14, 12. Who wrote this? Besides, God wrote it through the hand of who? The Apostle Paul. And Paul, you know how important pronouns are? Listen to this. So then, each of us. Ha! Huh, the pronoun us. Who does Paul include in this group? He includes himself. And he's talking to the Romans who know Christ. These are people who know Christ. He's including himself. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Whoa, I said, what's this? Romans 14.10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. For we, Paul says, including himself, will stand before God's judgment seat. Huh. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body. Now get this last phrase. Whether good or bad. How about that? And he includes us in this judgment. Listen to an, uh, a commentator's statement on this. I hate being read to. I fall asleep. I'm going to read to you. Please don't be me. This is short. It's one paragraph and I'm done. Listen, I think it's very good. Of whom is this attendance before this judgment seat required? While it's true that all people are accountable to God, their maker and judge, Paul is here thinking primarily, if not exclusively, of each Christian's obligation to give an account of himself to God. And he points out, Romans 14, 12. Appearance before Christ's tribunal is the privilege of Christians. His judgment is concerned with the assessment of works and indirectly of character, not with the determination of one's eternal destiny. Judgment on the basis of works is not opposed to justification on the basis of faith. Delivered from observing the law, Christians are presently committed to works produced by faith. And then he says, not all verdicts on the judgment day, however, will be comforting. And he quotes this following verse. This is in a passage, actually. 1 Corinthians chapter, I thought it was 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, let me start here at 13. No, no, let me start at 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day, that's a capital D, will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, 
he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Interesting passage, isn't it? We don't think of this very much as Christians. One other short word from the commentator. Those Christians whose works stand the test of fire will be rewarded. Those whose works are consumed by the fire will themselves escape the flames as if they were, as if they were jumping out of the burning wooden structure that they had built and be saved, but without any works of praise to present to Christ. Now, I, as a Christian, have been granted by Christ the opportunity, very truly, the privilege to present to him the good deeds that, quote, I performed the Holy Spirit through me during my life. Obviously, you, if you know Christ, you have the same privilege. I want you to picture something. You're dead. You are at this judgment seat. And an angel comes up to you, and he dumps into your arms your life. And then he opens the top, top to a kiln. Do you know what a kiln is? It, it goes up to extremely high temperatures. So he says, put everything in the kiln. So you dump your whole life in the kiln. The angel closes the lid and flicks on the switch. And you're told to wait. And when the angel comes back and the kiln is cool, he, he tells you, I'm going to open this. You're to take everything that remains inside and go over here to, at the foot of the throne of God to Christ himself and present what's left to him as your offering. And the Bible says that some people, when that lid is opened and they look down, will find many things there, many things where the Holy Spirit has used them throughout their life. They've given their life to him, and he has blessed them with, with works that glorify Christ. Other people will find some some people will find a few. Someone might find one. And it says in the word of God that some people will find nothing. They'll look down at the bottom of that kiln and that's what they'll see. The bottom of the kiln. Now I'll tell you something. This thought breaks my heart. Can you imagine bringing before the one who saved you from eternity in hell and gave you the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit to guide you into an abundant and fruitful life for Christ. Can you imagine bringing to him the air in your hands as proof of a squandered and wasted life? I can't imagine. And this is where the title of the message comes from. It's good enough. For this person, getting into heaven was good enough. And once he knew he'd received Christ, he stopped growing, serving, or trying. He quenched the promptings of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible clearly says that we can do. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 19a. Do not quench the Spirit. But as he walks empty-handed toward the throne, he will despise himself for thinking that good enough was good enough. Do you know what's even more blessedly ironic in our situation? When we present to Christ these good deeds that were done by Christ's power 
at Christ's direction through us, you know what we get when we present those to him? He's going to reward us for them. We get a reward for being a part of what he did for himself through us to glorify himself. It's, again, it's like salvation, too good to be true, except guess what? It is. And these rewards are preached in Scripture. Like salvation itself, it seems too good to be true. Matthew 10, 42. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his, what's the last word? Reward. That's what the Bible says. He won't lose his reward if he does it for me. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person, listen to the last words, according to what he has done. 1 Corinthians 3, 14. If what he built survives, he will receive his reward. Ephesians 6, 8, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. Revelation 22, 12, behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to everyone according to what he has done. Among those rewards are likely the crowns that are mentioned in Scripture. I've found three of them. They're the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory. And you know what strikes me as? Peculiar. That in order for me to have the chance to receive one of these crowns, the Lord Jesus Christ wore a crown of thorns. It's amazing, the story of salvation. The scripture... I'd like to read to you this morning is Philippians 3.10 and uh, following. It's uh, probably my memory, my life's verse. I don't like life verses because whenever I go into the scripture, I'll find another one that I like better. (laughs) And uh, so they kind of knock each other off the top. But I will tell you that I seem to keep coming back to this one over many, many years now as being so important and as my goal it says this, it's first, I mean, it's Philippians chapter 3, and actually what I have as my verse is just the first five words of verse 10, which say, I want to know Christ. I want to know, and you know that I don't mean, and Paul doesn't mean this, I want to know Christ. No, it's not know about him. It's I want to know Christ. The rest of the verses go like this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Get this next part. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Then Paul. And if you've read much about him in the scriptures, you know that he really was a humble man. He knew that everything he had came from Christ. Everything. In fact, it's previous in this book, in the verses previous to the ones I just read. Not that I've already obtained all this, he says, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Then he goes on again and he says that, Brother, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind 
and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's his life. That was Paul's life. Now, you think I'm asking you to be like the Apostle Paul? I'll bet some of you would go, no. You know what? I am. Why should I ask less? Christ doesn't ask you any less. I have a a very good friend. In fact, uh, someone mentioned him earlier. Uh, His name is Tim Buck. I've learned a lot from Tim over the years. And Tim once said to a group of young men, and I listened and I thought it was great. He said, the worst thing that a person can do is to make Christ a part of their life. And the first time you hear that, you go, what? And then when you think about it, you know what he was saying. Christ doesn't want to be a part. He wants it all. That's what the Word of God talks about. And there are, there are different kinds of Christians. And some do give him all. It's my observation, folks. I'm not putting you down. And I'm glad I'm in a place where every one of you I'm speaking to has given their whole heart to Christ completely for your whole life. Right? I want that to be true. There's, a, there's an obedience that comes from one's mind. The mind declares something as logical and right and true, and on that basis, the person determines to follow the corresponding set of behaviors. This obedience of the mind, of trying to do it, is accompanied by feelings of obligation, pressure, guilt, and sometimes pride when we think we got it right. And I'm telling you that so many Christians live that way trying so hard to please Christ. I want to tell you that there's another Christian life. I lived that life for 10 years. Guess what? Six of those years was after I lived here, after I was a missionary. And I was convinced that the Christian life, is, in one word, is obedience. I have a message in another book written in green fountain pen ink. That's how I remember it. That was obedience. In one word, the Christian life is obedience. Obedience is very important. But I want you to listen to something. There's another obedience. It's an obedience that is a byproduct of one's relationship with Christ. I want you to picture something. I'm going to try to cut this just a little short because you have a wonderful way of letting people know that it's done. I want you to, have you ever watched an ant colony? Usually kids do, especially boys, just stare at it. And if you disrupt an ant colony, you'll see them crawling over each other two, three, four deep sometimes, just running, scurrying, whatever they're doing, and they kind of get it back together for ants. Well, I picture humanity as that. And God looking down from heaven and seeing us here on this earth, and we compare ourselves to each other. And we say, well, if I'm a little better than that guy, I'm doing okay. If I'm a little better than that guy. You know, that may work in some instances, but not with God. There's a a joke. I'm I'm getting ahead of my notes here. I'm pretty much done anyway. And the joke is this. It says, uh, two hikers come across a bear. Isn't that fun? In the woods. And one says, run! And the other one says, 
don't be silly, you can't outrun a bear. And the other one says, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> okay. Now that may work when it comes to bears, but it doesn't work when you're dealing with God. God does not care who you're better than or worse than. He doesn't care. What he cares about is if you're focused on him or not. I want you to picture, this is my, my visual picture. People scurrying around. I'm one of them. And I'm trying to climb on top of the other people as I'm going. And then, every now and then, someone in that group looks up and they see Christ. And what happens to them is this. They go, ah. And they realize the truth. And they forget about all the other people. And they just start to climb. Do you know how God reacts to that? I can tell you exactly how God reacts to that because it's in the scriptures. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God takes great pleasure in that. And this person then finds that they don't obey because they have to. They truly obey because they want to. In fact, if you'll accept this, they don't think about obeying. All they think about is their relationship with Christ. And out of that relationship comes obedience. But it's really just a byproduct of their relationship with Christ. If I could lead all people who've made a profession of Christ to that point... Not only I would be happy and they would be happy, but Christ would be happy. I lived for 10 years after I was really committed to Christ, just very quickly. Came to Christ when I was 16. God grabbed me hard when I was 19, wonderfully. No, no crisis or catastrophe. He just revealed himself to me, and I'm so grateful. But at that point, I went into the Word of God. And how important is this? This is extraordinarily important. This, if you will... One of the names of God, one of the names of Jesus is the Word of God. If that's true, and it is, how precious is this? It's like, if you will, this is Jesus. It's how I find out who he is. And I don't go into it? I don't think so. But see, I used to have to go into it. Actually, I wanted to, and I was in it a lot. But I was obeying out of obligation for a long time. And that I wish I could give you a formula for what happened. But somehow God revealed himself. I pictured God as a God with a whip. And his job was to keep me in line. Some people say you get the picture of God from your earthly father. Well, I don't know how true that was for me or for anyone else. But regardless, my picture was that his job was when I got out of line, cracked the whip and get me back in. That's living a life of obedience, trying, trying, trying to obey. But then something changed. And I read the scriptures and the scriptures showed me that God loves me more than I can imagine, that he desires my fellowship. That's why he sent Christ. He desires it. He wants it. Not just me. He does. My picture now is I sit in God's lap, and I talk to him, 
and I'm a little boy. And I actually have a picture of myself. I know, I'm an old man with white hair telling you this. I hope you don't think less of me for it. I picture myself as a five-year-old little boy, and occasionally I'll put my head back against God's chest, and I'll fall asleep, and my hair is tussled against his chest, and he puts his arms around me, and he smiles because he loves to have fellowship with me. And when that picture of God changed from the one to the other, I just so loved him and wanted to be with him all the time that that's when it changed for me. It no longer was a desire to obey. That just happened because I love him. I was a Christian before then, okay? But there's another, another level of the Christian life that I didn't know existed. And then I did. And I do. And it means everything to me. And I don't know what's left, uh, what's next. Till the day I die, I expect to learn more. And I can't imagine what glories await because of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God for Ralph Essery, of all people. There have been times when I realize Paul says he was the chief of sinners, but I feel like I fill that role. But he loves me anyway. Um, I should quit. I'm going to pray, and then I guess we have a song, and then I'll give a benediction, and we're done. Our God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Christ, your Son, who has done more for us than we will ever know while we're here, and actually maybe ever, ever know even in heaven. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. I pray that you'd open our eyes to yourself in a way we never thought possible. Show us more and more of who you are and make us live such lives that people will look at us and say, what have you got? Because you live in and through us and shine. You radiate out from us because you fill our hearts. Make it so, my God. In Jesus' name, amen.